The Superfeast mission is to improve the health, healing, and happiness of people and planet through their carefully curated offering of tonic herbs and medicinal mushroom blends. Practicing the art of Taoist tonic herbalism, they source herbs from their spiritual homelands, guided by the philosophy of Di Dao, collecting and sharing the most potent herbs and medicinal mushrooms available to those who wish to cultivate a healthy body and mind. You can explore the Superfeast ethos and their range of products at superfeast.com.au. Welcome to the Dumbo Feather Podcast, where we chat with thought leaders and change makers across the world who are building a hopeful future. In this episode, we get to know Pat McCabe, a Navajo mother, grandmother, artist, and ceremonial leader who has been deeply immersed in Indigenous, land-based ways of living. Having grown up in a multicultural neighbourhood in California, she's also accustomed to the realities of the industrialised world. And it makes her an invaluable bridge builder and cross-cultural communicator and a powerful voice for the deep and broad transformation needed to deal with our ecological and social crises. In this conversation for issue 63 of Dumbo Feather magazine, Pat speaks with our friend and founder of Local Futures, Helena Norberg-Hodge. I'd love to ask you about your childhood and what were some of the key experiences that shaped who you are? Well, I always say that my greatest gift to the world is being able to describe a transition and maybe a transformation too of being living on earth in modern world paradigm and then being introduced quite far on into life about another paradigm that human beings also live in. I say there are human beings all over the world who living in the same place, same element, same sky, same earth, same sea, <laughs> same everything. And yet the way that they approach living here as a human being, how they choose to have relationships with this place is so radically different than modern world paradigm. And so I am someone who's moving from one paradigm to the other, or I realize I've been on a big pause in between running back and forth and reporting to each paradigm. <laughs> so my childhood, well, I grew up here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which is the largest city in New Mexico. It was what we call the tricultural community. That means European descent, Spanish descent, and then also indigenous. My father was able to attend university. He got a Ford Foundation fellowship to go to really any school that he could get into. And so in the end, he was choosing between Stanford and Harvard. And my mom told him, no, we got to go to California. And I'm really grateful she made that call. <laughs> so our family went to live on the Stanford University campus when my father was getting his PhD. And I really feel like that's where I had a very deep schooling. It didn't have anything to do with an institution. It had to do with the community that was there because it was a very international community. So I really see that as a very key place in my world and in my life was growing up on one side, having a neighbor from Japan, on the other side, having a neighbor from Israel. And I guess the reason I bring that up is because I was really taught to respect other cultures and to value them and pay attention and to notice how they think, not only how they dress and what kinds of foods they eat, but how they're thinking too. And so I'm really grateful for that. It's so interesting, this indigenous wisdom into the modern world. There is an amazing paradox here where people who have tasted the industrial modern life and had a taste of the more land-based, earth-based 
more indigenous ways, start seeing a pattern. Almost all the people that I deeply respect have that experience. Yeah, and these two languages that each paradigm uses and holds are so radically different. Methodologies for who speaks, when, how, all these different things, they really can't speak to each other unless you have this translator. And I always wish that in an interview like this, that we had the possibility of talking to what I would say the really true elders, the elders that are sitting at home on the land and who stay there. And yet they might not be interested in in having this conversation either. They have their own reasons. There's a reason why they're staying there. So I really bow down and respect those people who hold that space. And I have huge respect for Indigenous peoples worldwide who are pointing out the injustices, the difficulties, and expressing their anger over history. I'm glad that they're holding that space because I don't know what the world would be if they weren't voicing those things. At the same time, I also feel like the place I hold of not necessarily being the one to voice those things, but to keep looking for ways to translate to each other which could be peacemaking, but mostly it's just trying to propose that there's very different ways for a human being to be in the exact same place. In modern world paradigm, I was raised in that paradigm mostly and was heading for high academics and ideally fame and fortune, right? (laughs) That's the plan. But it was hurting my soul so deeply that I was looking for a way out. And that's the thing about that modern world paradigm. It's never proposed that it could be any other way. Like, this is it. This is reality wait, no, this is a choice that some human beings are making about who we are, where we are, and how it is. So I notice that it's people like me who can be in this translation seat, and there are limitations to it. But I think it absolutely is necessary. (laughs) Absolutely. When was it that you were hurting and you really were looking for something else? How old were you by that time? Well, I mean, I was experiencing quite a bit of pain and confusion for a while because I look like I look. I look like I'm full-blooded Indigenous, which I am. And yet the history of my family was that my grandparents were taken into residential missionary boarding schools where they weren't with their family. They were raised by missionaries in an institution, and that's where they met. And then they sent their children And that's where my parents met also. And so by the time I came along, people in my immediate family were not practicing our culture, our spiritual ways, or speaking our language. So I have to say, there was a great deal of confusion for me in general, just looking the way I looked and yet not having the goods, not having the knowledge. People would always come up and see me. And of course, they'd say, gosh, you know, how do your people say this? Or what do they do about that? And I had nothing to say to them. But I'd say where the really big fork in the road came One, I got sent to an East Coast boarding school here in the United States called Phillips Exeter Academy, which is the epitome of the young person age 14 to 18 to be indoctrinated into going to Ivy League colleges, diplomats, children's, presidential candidates used to come and speak at our school. So on the one hand, my parents were elated and felt like I was in the cream of the crop of the United States. And yet for myself. (laughs) I just felt a lot of emptiness and devastation for just not understanding how all this was going to come out okay. And then when I was 29 years old, I definitely hit this place where I'd been trying to run in every imaginable way from myself and from this life. I just didn't understand what I was supposed to do here. It didn't make any sense to me. And at this point, I had two children. And I will say that I had watched people wrestling with this cultural interruption for generations. And I had watched people try to destroy themselves from that pain. And I could feel myself headed that way. 
And I knew the pain of what it was to be a young child watching the adults around me not be able to cope. So using addiction and other things to try to make it through life. And I realized, wow, I am getting ready to do the exact same thing and putting these two little kids that I have through that same mess. So I sent a cry out to the world. And at that point, I had left the church. You know, I'd been raised in the church myself. And when I went to boarding school, I stopped going, which was really frightening. I didn't know what was going to happen to my soul or me or anything. But I just felt like, no, I cannot keep going to this. So at 29 years old, when I sent this cry out, I really had no idea what would come back and answer me. And what came back to answer me was people invited me to my first Native American ceremony ever. Invited me to a Lakota sweat lodge and... The rest, as they say, is history. That's been my spiritual path ever since, a little over 25 years now. Yeah. My take on it is that the Western urban competitive hyper-individualistic whole package creates that pain in virtually everyone, which is why most teenagers also go through this deep suffering and feeling, you know, the meaninglessness of life. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It's the preparation ground to be able to, quote unquote, succeed in what I call the power over paradigm. The power over paradigm, it's an inherently violent paradigm. Basically, what it says is in order to have what you need, you have to beat somebody else out for what they need. And the goal is to do your very best not to be at the very bottom of the pyramid, but to have moved up somewhere above that because the people at the bottom were expendable and are expendable, which we're seeing at this very time on the earth right now with this pandemic, what that attitude is like and how people would make decisions because they've been so convinced that this is the only paradigm and they've been trained to succeed in it, which means a very brutal way of being with each other. I know as a young person, for me, I was looking for something else. Now I know it was community and it was multi-generational community. I want to talk more about that later. This whole issue is about localization as a systemic economic transition towards that more cooperative, intergenerational, community-based economy. I've heard you say that you would describe indigenous as being people of place. Can you elaborate on that? Right. So to me, I mean, I guess literally that's what the word means, to be a place. And I know that there are many people that I would call indigenous that balk at that word. But I think it's a good word for our time because I really feel as a species, as a whole, so many of us have not accepted or considered deeply, much less really gone into the science of it, that we're indigenous to earth. We surround ourselves with giant structures. We surround ourselves completely with things that came out of the human mind. And we begin to believe that that is the structure that we live in. In fact, I'm sure there are children who have grown up in these urban places and have never left. So we don't really understand what it means to be indigenous to earth. When I look at myself and my people culturally, I say, we are of a certain place. So this is over millennia. And it's when you have a ceremonial life, when you have a broad spectrum of ways of knowing, you have an ability to make relationship with place. A conversation is possible with the place over seasons, over longer weather patterns, unusual events, and how the people dealt with that. And so all that builds, just like with any relationship, when you've really weathered some storms with a person, there's a love there. And there's a way of being able to just look at each other and know at a glance what the other one is thinking and what is needed. And so I guess that's what I'm saying about indigenous means being of place. And some of us have been in place longer than others, or more recently, maybe we could say. 
often the way that I talk and terms that I use and activities that I talk about that are part of my daily life aren't readily received in modern world paradigm and very intellectual paradigm in very reductionist thought process paradigm. It's very hard for those who have not built a broad spectrum of ways of knowing to be able to receive what I have to say. So often I start right here. And this actually comes from the wonderful Dr. Greg Cajete, one of the first anthropologists who were first meeting us and writing about us. He was the one who noticed that every time he read them, he would see that when they would refer to us that we were primitive and childlike. And I just love him because he didn't go right away to, you know, what a bunch of racists such and such is. Instead, he said, there's a system of thought going on over there that is such that every time these people see us, these are the words that come to mind. And I wonder what that system of thought is. I think that's a very useful way of approaching many, many things in our world right now. (laughs) That's really a wise way, right? So he said, all right, well, let me examine. Maybe if I knew more about who these guys were that are writing about us and what their culture was like, I could understand why they're saying this. And so looking over the fence through his lenses, because we all have our lenses, what he thought he saw was that most of the early writers who wrote about indigenous people, what we now call the United States, were English aristocratic men. And so he said, all right, well, let me see if I can understand what their culture is like. And what he believed he saw was that These guys, up until the age of five in their culture, they were allowed to sing, dance, play, pretend, etc. But at the age of five, it was time to get down to the serious business of being the educated man. At that point, all these other activities could be hobbies, but the primary activity became the honing of the intellect. And that's how it pretty much remained for them until their death. So here come these guys to see us in what we now call the United States. And what were we doing, these indigenous peoples there? We were singing. We were dancing. We were having conversations with things that they didn't think you could talk to. We were receiving visions. And even our grown men were involved in these activities, right? So their only conclusion was these are primitive and childlike people. When I read that, everything changed for me. When you think about it, children all over the world, they all do that. Every human being, every one of our species starts out with that really deep way of seeing and hearing. We say when we look at children playing that they're pretending to have conversations. I'm not so sure. I think they are having conversations with things around them, animals and plants and etc. So anyway, we all start out that way. But we don't have that thing at the age of five where we put that away. We keep all of that open all the way from birth until death. And in fact, we begin to cultivate ways to do these activities together in community, such that we begin to have shared knowledge, not only have shared knowledge, but we generate knowledge collectively, which is not something that modern world knows much about. Everybody's trying to have the best idea first and get full credit by themselves for it. So another way of saying that is to say that we maintain a broad spectrum of ways of knowing. We don't limit ourselves only to intellect. I think that this is also the reason why we have been able to have practices that are long-term sustainability practices, like for millennia, in place. You can't really have that relationship with place with intellect alone. And that's a hard case to make in modern world, but I'm working on it. Well, I'm right with you. That's the difference between that left brain intellectual knowledge and embodied experiential knowledge in appreciating the complexity of the living world. This is also why I'm so adamant about the need to shorten the distance between 
the bit of the living world, its people and non-human life, and using it for our needs. So the economic, transactional economy, unless we are closer to the people we're having an impact on and the rest of nature we're having an impact on, we cannot appreciate the full complexity and the fact that nothing remains the same, nothing remains static, everything in flux and change. So that feedback that came to indigenous people made them responsive, made them humble in the face of complexity, and as you said, all the time sharing it as a group in a participatory way. And they built, as you said, over millennia, collective knowledge. You know, that plant we can use when it's been dried and we can feed it to animals, but humans can't eat it, it's poisonous. This one you can only eat in the spring or this can be used in this way. So that deep, intimate knowledge is what, for me, localization is all about. Right. And I think another thing to maybe bring into that conversation about local is that for many indigenous peoples, they have something that they might call original instructions, right? So this is understanding the lay of the land, understanding the construct that humanity was placed in here on this earth. I believe that we live in a free will construct. What that means is that we can pretty much do whatever we come up with everywhere. Everybody's been doing whatever they can dream up to do. That's what they do. And that's really fueled by what we're talking about. You getting the best idea all by yourself and trying it out first is the way. And so there's no intergenerational council. There's no intercultural council. There's no global council. People just come up with an idea and they can see one use for it and they go for it. So that's doable. That's possible. However, there's a caveat to that, apparently. And the caveat to that is this, that is that you might be able to do anything you can dream up, but you might not be able to have life on this Mother Earth if you do everything you can dream up. So it begs for this idea that, well, maybe you can't just do anything. Well, what's the criteria for what you might not be able to do? And I think indigenous cultures have been very meticulous about passing down their understanding of what makes sense to do here and what doesn't. And so one of those things is this idea of every being has sovereignty, not just humans, but every single being is a sovereign being and they have a role to play. And here I might bring up this concept of the sacred hoop. So there's the sacred hoop of life, like a circle. And Every life form gets to have a seat on this sacred hoop. And every life form has to uphold their part of the sacred hoop. And if any life form doesn't uphold their part, then the integrity of the hoop begins to fail and their neighbors begin to not be able to uphold their part quite as well. And so things begin to deteriorate. So each being has a very particular thing that they offer to this hoop. I don't believe we have the right to interfere with any one of the beings perfect design for thriving life and their ability to uphold their part of the hoop. We must not interfere with that. So that's what I mean when I say each being has sovereignty. They have to be allowed to fulfill their trajectory and their role. And so when we don't understand that every being has sovereignty, we interfere with all of these different roles. We interfere with all these different beings being able to uphold their part. I mean, we truly are an interbeing. When we would go out to collect sage medicine for ceremony, my clan grandfather would say, you need to have a conversation with these beings. You need to ask if it's okay for you to take them. Maybe there's something going on with them right now that they'd say, you know, now's not a good time. Why don't you try those guys way over there? (laughs) 
And so people say, well, how do you know if they're saying yes or no? Well, that takes time and practice. If you keep going out and you keep going out, it'll begin to register in your own body. You will begin to have this conversation. So that's why we make offerings before we take anything. And that is a part of creating a consensual relationship that is honoring of the sovereignty of all the beings involved. That's one thing that I'm seeing with this localization versus globalization is just like you're saying, you cannot begin to see who is impacted from across the world when you get on Amazon and you order whatever you're ordering, not to mention the Amazon workers who apparently aren't having it so good right now with this pandemic and the financial structure that they're in. So there's no way to really honor that sovereignty when you are reaching so far beyond your own locale. The sovereign beings also exist in relationships that are sacred. When we go in, you know, clear-cutting forests and taking animals and putting them in cages, they're also disrupting the sovereignty of viruses and of individual communities of cells that have coexisted for millennia. The long-distance relationship creates a system that couldn't be more arrogant and in many ways couldn't be more evil. It's about cutting apart the fabric of life. But because it's blind, I don't think of the individuals as evil. I think of the system and the acts are a type of evil, but it's mainly ignorance. Wouldn't you agree? I would. And I was going to say, I actually have compassion to a fault (laughs) For, for modern world paradigmers. I understand what people are up against to really think outside of that space. It's a really daunting prospect to be in a paradigm where you really believe this is the only way. You have to get on top of that heap or you will not be able to provide for children or family or whatever. And unfortunately, the mindset of it means that even after you've made your first billion dollars, you still have that sense. I mean, it's a crazy making way of being that is self-perpetuating to such outlandish degrees. But I really get that if you believe that that is the sole reality here. And why wouldn't you think that? You were born into it. Your parents were born into it. Your grandparents were born into it. It's multi-generational. It's reinforced. To make matters worse, it might have appeared to be working for your great-grandfather at one time. I really feel for the men of today in modern world paradigm because they're like, wow, you know, my great-grandfather did this for their family and my grandfather was able to do this and my father was even able to do this and why can't I make this work? And it's because it's literally a pyramid scheme. So (laughs) it only worked for so long to benefit some people, but eventually someone gets left holding the bags. So I have a huge amount of compassion for people who really believe that that's the only way. And I just happen to know that there are other ways of being here that don't necessarily lead to that. And that don't lead to that loneliness, that frustration, that sense of deep, deep alienation. To come back to those English aristocrats, I've actually known that culture quite intimately, some of it even in my family. And the thing that we also need to recognize is that this way of being trained into left-brain intellectualism was a way of suppressing your own needs, your own heart, your own body. It was a perfect way of raising young men to go out to conquer the world without any feeling. It is wonderful that we now have more and more recognition of that. You know, there's this whole micro-trend towards truly embodied therapy where we're actually being helped to come back into our senses and into our feelings. And of course, we have many examples now of reconnection 
as the healing paradigm. For me, that's also fundamentally what localization is about, is that reconnection, deep reconnection to others and to life itself. And that experience of oneness is, for me, what lies behind virtually every spiritual tradition and religion. And the deep joy and ecstasy from being able to feel part of that enormous family of life Yeah, I often have the opportunity to work with young people, and that's a really big thing for them. I work a lot with college students, and sometimes they even let me work with high school students. (laughs) I feel like I'm a little radical sometimes, maybe, for them. But, you know, what I end up saying to them is, you know, you've got to want your life. You've got to want it. And so whatever it is that makes you want your life, do it. Do that. And I also tell them, your joy matters. Your joy matters. (laughs) And every time I say that, there's always just stunned silence. And I always have to say it like at least one more time, if not two more times, so that young people can even let it in. Nobody ever said that to me. Nobody ever said that my joy mattered. And I usually check with all the adults in the room and say, did anybody ever say that to you? No, we don't talk about joy, not even with our beloved young people. That's a crazy marker as a human being that you would not say that to a young person. Your joy matters. And the reason we don't say that is because we know that you're going to enter into this system where you're probably not going to get to think much about joy or reach for joy or experience much joy. So it's kind of better that we just don't even bring it up. I'm trying to tell these young people, your joy is your compass. Your joy is telling you about why you came here, because you came here for something. (laughs) You don't end up here by accident. For me, I can say that I have finally come into my life's purpose, and there's a lot of joy in it. There's sustained joy in knowing that I'm in my purpose. I'm not spending a lot of time wondering what should I be doing necessarily. I feel like I'm in it. And so that's why I say your joy is your compass, because your deepest joy is going to come when you really hit that bullseye of, oh, this is what I came for. The paradox of it is, is that what you came here for is going to flow out of you pretty naturally. It's not something that has to be cultivated and trained and you have to rehearse and rehearse. There may be certain events that have to happen to bring you to that realization. But once you hit it, it just arises and flows out. So it's pretty antithetical to this whole system that our young people are being placed in. It's not a very far leap to not say I'm speaking to young people, but to speak to any human being at this point on the planet and say this to them. It's a real pausing moment because We don't really understand what our emotions are for. It's been told to us that they are frivolous. It has not been proposed to us that they are telling us about the deepest part of our purpose and journey and being here. I think also we have to be careful because there are a lot of talk, you know, encouraging people to listen to their passion. But it's all within this paradigm of the fame and fortune that we were talking about. That message is part of the whole package of this modern economy, which is what's been pushing children away from that universal need to feel loved, connected, appreciated, heard. And I think the most evil aspect of this colonial patriarchal system has been to rob children of that genuine sense of love and connection that they're all looking for and replacing it with a message, if you want to have that love and connection, you've got to have the latest iPad, you've got to be doing well at school, you've got to be a success, and stamp on the others 
and then you'll get what you're looking for. You really raise an important point, and that's something that I've had to try to keep on my radar. And this actually comes up a lot with Indigenous people sharing wisdom and knowledge, is if you are sharing wisdom and knowledge from the thriving life paradigm, the way it gets received and translated by modern world paradigm can have disastrous results. <laughs> and this is why Indigenous people are more often than not saying we can't share these things. Sometimes it's definitely out of anger and a sense of evening the score. And that's a very human thing. I understand it. But there's also, even for the people who don't necessarily go that direction, there's this concern that the way this is going to be received from a modern world paradigm where it's all about me and the concept of we is very, very fragile and tenuous at best. How can these things really be used? Because the goals for each paradigm are radically different. Personal achievement, personal fame and fortune versus not only collective success for your community, but really success with earth community. One thing that's true, isn't it? I'm sure you're seeing it too, is this huge shift towards a deeper listening and a deeper appreciation. My sense is now with this virus that, again, there's this huge opportunity that people are beginning to really question the dominant system and coming back to a real appreciation of community. Yeah, I mean, so much is being illuminated if you care to look at all. You're going to see many, many things going on out there that will break down any notion that those in the leadership roles are really looking out for the people. They're quite upset right now that their own wealth is going to be interrupted. So it's a pretty amazing thing to look at. Well, one of my elders said, viruses come when we are unprepared to host our futures. And so I've been thinking about this. How am I unprepared to host my future? Again, you know, it depends on which paradigm you're looking at. I'm sure there are people who are trying to figure out how they're going to come back financially in their business as soon as this is all over. I'm not sure it's going to work that way. This change might be much deeper than allowing us to just go back and resuming where we were before. And if not this cataclysmic event, then some other ones that are very close behind it, I think are definitely going to knock us out of that possibility. So it's making me consider, what is this future that I'm looking to host? You know, in my prayers, I talk about how do I participate fully in the very highest possibility for life and light and love? I don't think I know what that is. So there's a placeholder for me in terms of preparing for this future. So it's a very deep listening and a deep questioning for myself. And so I have to imagine that many people, of course, are going through that. They're having to reckon with the unhappiness that you're describing, the loneliness, the continuous competitiveness. If you can sacrifice your rest, you might actually end up ahead of somebody else who had to rest. So you'll never rest. Those kinds of outlooks. So it's going to be really interesting to see what emerges for all kinds of people. I feel so blessed because having been involved, you know, for 40 years now in promoting this sort of community-based localizing path, I'm getting so much news from the grassroots where community building, particularly around local food and so on, is happening every day, you know, news from the grassroots that you just don't get in the media. And that's where I see this amazing testimony to the perseverance of human beings to reconnect again, to listen to their whole bodies. From the bottom up, people are clearly showing a valuing of the indigenous, 
people, so of life, of animals. There's a bit of cultural transformation going on. From my point of view, what hasn't been transformed is the economic trajectory, which now at the top of the pyramid scheme, the national government leaders and the global business leaders are fearfully running in the same direction and virtually losing their humanity. So they come out with these pronouncements, you know, we've got to keep the economy alive over everything else. My absolute conviction is that that's not the a voice of the majority. And I do see all kinds of signs of people in their local areas supporting each other now and really getting in touch with the earth again, food and connecting with each other. Thanks for tuning in to the Dumbo Feather podcast. We produce on the lands of the Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nations and acknowledge traditional owners and elders past and present. If you'd like to stay connected to our work, sign up to our fortnightly newsletter over at dumbofeather.com. Superfeast, powerful tonic herbs and medicinal mushrooms grown in harmony with nature to elevate the mind, body and spirit.